I invite you to take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 2. James chapter 2. And our passage this morning is verses 14 through 26. As we read it, I'd invite you to stand with me for the reading of God's word. Don't always do that, but I love the practice to honor God's word. So let me read verses 14 through 26. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and fi- warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one? You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way, was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. Let's pray together. Holy Father, as we read your word, we are challenged and we tremble. We hear the words of James and are confronted by a reality we don't often think of. We pray that you would grant grace that our ears would be opened, our eyes would be opened, that we might hear and see the truth of these words. And may we leave here trusting in Christ more than ever before, abiding in him more than ever, even as we work. We ask that you would give us clarity and understanding now as we study. In Christ's name, amen. You may be seated. Well, as you know, our passage this morning is a challenging passage, not because it's difficult to understand, 
but because it's difficult to accept what it says. On its face, it appears to be in conflict with other passages of Scripture, especially with some familiar passages of Paul's writing. It's also an uncomfortable passage for us because it questions some of our most cherished assumptions. And it says things in a way that, if not rightly understood, would be heresy. We have two weeks to cover this passage, and I made the decision, rather than break this section or passage into two parts, to cover it all in this week. So what I plan to do is cover all of this passage, 13 verses, that's no small feat, but I'm only going to be able to do that by putting off all of the questions, all of the harmonization with the rest of Scripture. What I want to do this morning is let James speak for James. I don't want to explain James to you via Paul or John. I want us to let James speak, to hear what he has to say. So you'll notice in your insert, there aren't any cross-references I'm not going to attempt this week to explain how he fits with the rest of Scripture. I'm only going to try to explain what he's saying. Now, there are a couple Old Testament passages, James quotes. We will look at those, but I'm not going to turn to Paul this week. Next week, we'll save all of our, wait, if that's true, then what about this? How do faith and works fit together? This morning, let's focus on what James tells us through the Holy Spirit. As I read, you no doubt noticed the theme of this section, faith and works. And James deals with faith and works in four main parts. Let's read the first part, 14 through 17. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, notice two things in these verses. First, that faith. Very important. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James is not talking about faith in general. He is talking about this supposed faith. This imaginary faith that someone says they have, yet at the same time they have no works. Can that kind of faith save him? And then second, important to understand, the kind of faith that he's talking about, he'll say this in a bunch of different ways, but the kind of faith he's talking about is an alone faith, a by-itself faith, a faith apart from works. So we're not talking about faith in general. 
We're talking about this kind of faith, the kind of faith that has no works, the kind of faith that is by itself all alone, the kind of faith without works. And what does he tell us? Faith all alone benefits no one. Faith all alone benefits no one. What good is it? He asks. It is no good. It's not not very good. It's no good. It benefits no one. It does nothing. And he follows up with a question. Can that faith, that no good faith, can that faith save him? And he sets up the question deliberately to make the answer clear. And the answer is no. That faith cannot save him. It can't. Now that should shock us. It should scare us a little bit. There is a faith that will not save. There is a faith that cannot save. This faith, the faith apart from works, cannot save anyone. Can that faith save him? Better, I'd translate it. That faith can't save him, can it? No, it can't. And while we might have a hard time accepting that, James doesn't want it to be hard to accept. He wants it actually to be obvious, patently obvious. And so he gives us an illustration. He gives us this illustration. Your first uh, blank there, a claim to faith without works cannot save. A claim to faith without works cannot save. Now remember here before I, I continue, let James speak for James. Let James say what he wants to. Don't bring Paul in at this point and make him reinterpret James. Let James speak for himself. James leaves no doubt. He wants this to be clear. Of course, this faith cannot save. And here's the illustration, verses 15 and 16. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food. Okay, so this person comes in or comes to you, a brother or a sister, a a male or a female, poorly clothed. Uh, woodenly, it's naked, but it's probably not naked in that sense. It's like unclothed. They don't have the, the clothing on their back that they need to make it through the day. Imagine this in wintertime. Okay? They, they lack the clothing they need for their body, and they don't even have food for the day. This, this isn't our American poverty you know, making $30,000 a year on welfare. This man or woman is literally unclothed, literally without food. Okay? Now imagine that. That person, and you look at them and you say, go in peace. Be warmed and filled End of story. What good is that? Any? (laughs) Of course not. It's completely worthless. 
Can you imagine the hard heartedness you would have to say to or to have to say to this person, go, go be, go in peace. So glad to see you be warmed and filled. Why is that so painful for us to even imagine? Because the obvious requirement of your statement, go in peace, be warmed and filled is what? You need to give them something. And James adds, but does not give to them what is necessary for their body. Without giving them the things needed for the body. You don't give them any clothes. You don't give them any food. And you send them off with that greeting or that, uh, that salutation. Go in peace. Can you imagine the audacity it would take to do that? Can you imagine You know this person has no clothing. You know they have no food. And you look in your closet and you look in your refrigerator and you tell that person, go in peace. It's unimaginable. And James says, that is faith without works. That's faith without works. Faith Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Without works, you do not give to them what the body needs. Totally worthless. Words without deeds do no good. Words without deeds do absolutely no good. And in case you missed his point, he wraps it up in verse 17. So also... Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Now, would it be fair to say, if you told that poor brother or sister, go in peace, be warm and filled, if you said that, would it be fair to say your faith was dead? Would would we not agree? That's a pretty empty statement. And James says, in the same way, faith if it does not have works, is dead. And notice again, the, the, the ESV doesn't bring it out in verse 17, but it's there. It would be awkward to say it, but it's not just any faith. It's that faith. So also that faith or that kind of faith, the by itself faith, if it doesn't have works, is dead. Can it save? No. It cannot save. It's dead. The kind of faith which is by itself is dead. The kind of faith which is by itself is dead. Pretty clear, isn't it? It's not hard to figure out what James is saying. What's hard? To accept it. To accept it. Faith by itself, if it has no works, is dead. Now, uh, let me just pause and consider why. Why does James say here that faith, if it has no works, is dead? Well, consider the illustration again. Do you actually mean to the person that you send off, do you actually mean I want peace for you? Go in peace, be warmed and filled. Do you actually want them to be warmed and filled? No. Because you didn't give them what they needed. So what James is telling us is that there is a faith which is false. A faith which is dead. 
Now, you might think in your head, no, I really do want them to be warmed and filled. No, I really do want them to have peace. But if you give them nothing, what do you actually prove? No, you don't. Whatever faith you claim to have is dead faith. Now, James anticipates an objection in verses 18 and 19. Let me read it. Someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one. You do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. So now James brings up a a, a, a person questioning. Oh, wait, wait, hold on a second. I've got a question. And these verses are actually the most difficult uh, verses in the whole passage in, in interpretation. And the reason is you would think that the person asking the question would say things the opposite way. The question you would anticipate is somebody saying, well, I have faith and you have works. But he actually says the opposite. You have faith and I have works. Now, I'm not going to spend the time to explain all of the different possibilities, but the, the scenario is pretty clear. One person has faith One person has works, okay? And what does James say? Show me your faith without works. Show me your faith apart from your works. And I will show you my faith by my works, okay? Those are the two options. Faith cannot be seen without works, It can't be seen without works. James says, I'm going to show you my faith by what I do. Someone else is going to say, I have faith. I really do. You don't know what's in my heart. And James says, okay, show me. Show me your faith. Show me that you believe without works. Can you do it? It's impossible. You can't show somebody that you have faith unless you work. You can't do it. It's impossible to do. James says, by my works, I will show you my faith. I'm going to show you my faith by what I do. You can't show someone your faith apart from what you do. So faith cannot be seen without works, but it can be seen by works. It can be seen by works. Now, faith without works can't be seen. So, let's think about this in our own lives. I say, I believe. You say, well, that's wonderful. I believe that you believe. (laughs) What's the problem when I claim to have faith? What's the uncertainty that's left in your head? Do I really believe? Do I really? Because we can all think of people who have made professions of faith. I believe in Jesus. But the way they live their life tells us they don't believe in Jesus. We all know people who said a prayer, who made a decision, who walked down an aisle, and then they walked away from the Lord. They never lived as though they knew him. But they would say, I believe, I believe. But we say, 
How, how, how can I know that? It doesn't look like you believe. And there's another question that I think is really important for us, especially in this day and age, because we have such uh, rigid claims to autonomy. You can't tell me what I believe. And if somebody says to you, how do you know what I believe? I, w- I would say in return, how do you know what you believe? Because what the problem is with the human heart is not what other people think about us. The problem with the human heart is what's real. How do we know what we actually believe? Aren't there days where you wake up and you feel like you believe? And other days you wake up and you don't necessarily feel like you believe? Aren't we tossed to and fro by our feelings all the time? And so the question of whether or not I believe, that question can't even be answered by me unless I have works. The only way that I can know what I really believe is by what I do. That's it. It's the only method that I have of knowing my own belief or unbelief. And he makes this, I think, most clearly in verse 19 by giving us an example of a demon. This is absolutely shocking. You believe that God is one, you do well, which may be complete sarcasm or irony, like, hey, good job, buddy. But I think it's at least like, well, that's good so far as it goes. That's great that you believe. But the major objection Satan believes that. Demons believe the same thing. So you think that because you believe something in your heart, you believe it's true, or your head, you believe that it's true, you think that's going to save you? And James says, brother, the demons believe that same thing. And they shudder. Now, what does that mean, they shudder? I think James is pointing to what we all know. You know, sometimes we, when, when we're evangelizing or witnessing, um, practicing apologetics, defending the faith, sometimes we think the issue is knowledge. And there's a sense in which, yes, people need the right knowledge to be saved. But if they have the right knowledge, does that mean they are saved? Well, obviously not. Uh, just imagine you're, you're the king of the land. And you have one guy who says, I don't recognize you as king. And he comes and he fights against you. And then you have another person who comes to you and says, well, I believe the, that you're the king of the land, but I hate you. Are either of those people subject to the king? It's not an issue of whether or not you recognize the truth. The issue is how you respond to the truth. What do the demons do when Jesus is is on earth and there's a demon-possessed person? What do they say? What do I have to do with you, Jesus, son of the Most High? What do I have to do with you? They know that Jesus is the Son of God. They know that Jesus is the son of God. They would affirm his deity. And how do they feel about it? Oh, 
They hate it. The issue is not the affirmation of the truth. The issue is what we do with that truth. How do we respond to that truth? So somebody could say to you, I believe that Jesus died on the cross for sins. I believe that he's the son of God. I believe that if I trust in him, I can be forgiven and have eternal life. And I don't want it. How do we know? I think one of the dangers in American Christianity over the past hundred years or so has been what's called decisionalism. That we think if a person makes a decision for Jesus, that proves that they're saved. James wants us to know that is not how it works. You can make a decision to follow Jesus. You can say that you believe in Jesus. And if you do not follow him, you're going to hell. That's one of the greatest dangers that we face. That somebody thinks because they said a prayer 20 years ago that, and then did whatever they wanted the rest of their life, that they're going to heaven. James says, no, brother. You are deceived. Your faith is dead. It cannot save you. Even the demons believe that. Even the demons believe that. It is not enough just to believe orthodox truth. We have to love it and live by it. Now, the second or the third part, the next part, verses 20 to 23, I separate. I think uh, as we go through it, it will become clear why Abraham is a distinct point from Rahab. So we're going to look at these separately. And the point of Abraham is that faith without works accomplishes nothing. Faith without works accomplishes nothing. Now you get, you get the tone of what James is saying here by his opening line. Do you want to be shown you foolish person? He's not taking this argument seriously. You're literally Mr. Empty Head. Empty man. Okay, empty man, you want me to show you this? And the implication is, this is obvious, it doesn't need showing. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? Now, there's a play on words here. And the way that he says this, you could translate it this way, faith Without works, works nothing. The verb, uh, useless, is, it's, it's got the same root in it that works comes from. So it's unworking. Now, if I re- restate it, I think it's a little clearer. Do you need me to show you, you know, empty head, that an unworking faith doesn't work? It's in the definition, If you don't work, you have no works. But more than a play on words, he's not just saying the obvious. He's saying more than that. The implication is if you have a faith that doesn't work, your faith is useless. It accomplishes nothing. The kind of faith that is without works, works nothing. It doesn't do anything. 
Now, how does Abraham fit into this? Well, let's look at what James tells us. Was not Abraham, verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And he was called a friend of God. The kind of faith that has no works doesn't do any good. He's going to demonstrate that with Abraham. Now, before we look at Abraham and then Rahab, I need to explain the wording that the ESV uses and how I interpret it. You see in verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Now, you can think of some other passages that say things about justification. And if the question that James is asking is, was Abraham saved by his works? Was Abraham counted as righteous before God by his works? Our question is going to be very different. I'm taking a different interpretation of that word, and it's the idea of vindication. Not that God declares someone to be righteous, but that God shows someone to be righteous. And you can think of this on a human level. How do I know whether or not you're righteous? You might be righteous in your heart. How do I know it? when I see what you do, right? So you can, you can all think of your coworkers and you probably have an idea which ones of them are righteous and which ones aren't. How do you know that? Because you've watched them for years. You see what they do. Now, the question of Abraham's righteousness is, there's two issues. We're only dealing with one. The first issue is, when was Abraham saved? When did God say to Abraham, I justify you, I make you righteous, you are righteous in my sight? That's one question, and I don't think that's what James is focusing on. The second question is, when was Abraham shown to be righteous? When did the world know that Abraham was righteous? Even when did Abraham himself know that he was righteous? And I think that vindication is what James is talking about. So, A, a man is vindicated by works and not by faith alone. He again asks a question that he assumes we can figure the answer out to. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? And the assumed answer is, yes, of course he was. That's obvious. Abraham, our father, was justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar. And how many of you say, of course, that's totally clear. Anyone? anyone? I don't think many of you are like, yeah, duh. Because we all think of what he quotes later on. Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. And so I think James is distinguishing justification, what we would call salvation, that moment when God declares us righteous and when God shows us to be righteous or vindicates us. Okay, so a man is vindicated by works and not by faith 
alone, or I'm sorry, I skipped to the wrong one. The kind of faith that is without works works nothing. Abraham was vindicated when he offered Isaac. Now let's turn back to Genesis 22, make sure that we know what he's referring to. Genesis 22:12. Well, 22. I'll read a couple verses. We know this account. It's a familiar account, account the, the account of the binding of Isaac. We don't know exactly how old Isaac is at this point, but we know that God promised Abraham, it's Isaac that I'm going to bless. I give my covenant to him. He's the one who's going to fulfill the promises, not Ishmael. And then... Verse 1 of chapter 22, after these things, God tested Abraham. So he tests him, tries him, and he says, I want you to take your son, and he's so emphatic about this, your only son, and offer him. What's the, the test? Will Abraham believe? Oh, thank you. That's wonderful. Will Abraham obey? Will he believe God or not? So Abraham takes Isaac and he goes the next morning up to the Mount, Mount Moriah, which is, we believe, uh, same as Mount Zion. It's a part of Mount Zion, Jerusalem. No, it's not called Jerusalem at that time, but that's the same place. And Isaac says, Dad, I see the wood, but where's the offering? And Abraham says, God will provide the offering. Well, they get up to the hill, they lay out all the wood, and Abraham ties Isaac. He binds Isaac. Okay, now let's pick it up in verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar on top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. He's going to do it. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham. He said, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him. And then take note of these words. For now I know That you fear God. Now, I don't think God learned in that sense. God was trying to figure out, looking at Abraham, I'm not real sure if he, and then, okay, now I know. God's not figuring things out, right? He knows everything. God says, now it is clear that you fear God. Now, if I were to tell you, was not Abraham vindicated when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? Then you'd say, Yes, that's when it's clear that Abraham is righteous, that Abraham does fear the Lord, that Abraham does believe. He believes. We know because of what he did. Number two, Abraham's faith was working with his works. His faith was working with his works. Go back to James 2. Abraham's faith was working together with his works. 
Again, the play on words a little bit hard to bring across smoothly, so the ESV translates it, see, verse 22, you see that faith was active along with his works, it is working together with. His faith was working together with his works. Why is that uh, such a significant issue? Because his faith was doing what? His faith was working. His faith was working. Is that the same kind of faith we were talking about before? Oh, no. The kind of faith we were talking about before, that's the kind of faith without works. That's the kind of faith apart from works. Abraham's faith is radically different. It is a working faith. And what does his working faith do? It works works. And what do the works do? The works complete or fulfill his faith. I like this better. Number three, his works brought his faith to fruition. His works brought his faith to fruition. When you plant a tree in the ground, you think it's doing well. When do you actually know that tree is healthy and it's doing well? Not until it bears fruit. And I have two nectarine trees to prove it. They've got nothing on them. It's been six years. Come on, nectarines. How do I know which? You know what? The nectarine trees look better than my peach tree. The big problem, the peach tree's got hundreds of peaches and the nectarine's got nothing on it. Now I hope, I hope next year's going to be the year. I'm going to dig a well around it and I'm going to fertilize it. Uh, That's what I hope. The problem is it's got nothing. I've got no proof that it's good. I will know that the tree is healthy when it bears fruit. And that's what James wants us to see in Abraham. Abraham's vindicated. It's proved that he's righteous when he bears fruit and he obeys the Lord. And to answer the question, well, uh, the first one he asked, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith without works is worthless? To answer that question, imagine Abraham's story in reverse or opposite. God says to Abraham, take your son. And Abraham says, I believe, Lord. And I'll just stay here. Absolutely impossible. It couldn't happen. It would be like Abraham saying to the Lord, go in peace, be warmed and have a nice offering. What is required by the claim to faith? The obedience of the faith. So Abraham's works brought his faith to fruition and it proved, it vindicated that his faith was real. Now, I don't think there's any doubt that James understands it this way because he himself quotes the verse everyone else wants to say, James, that can't be true. James quotes in verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled that says, Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Problem, that's probably about 25 years beforehand. That's from Genesis 15. And that's the verse we all know and cherish. Paul quotes also. That's the verse that says Abraham 
believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Then 25 years later, God says to Abraham, take your son. When do we know that Abraham fears God and has faith? When does the world know Abraham truly believed? Obviously, when he took Isaac and sacrificed or was prepared to sacrifice him on the altar. So when James quotes Abraham, he is saying that his vindication fulfilled what was already a reality. He didn't get saved when he offered Isaac as an offering. He proved that he was saved. And you cannot say that back in Genesis 15, 6. Okay, let's wrap up with Rahab, okay? Uh, it's a good thing we don't have ABF. I'm not going to go that long, but I'm probably a little bit late. All right, James 2, uh, Rahab, verse 24. Uh, you see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. That, uh, you want to put before verse 24, put a little line. This is a, a new thought. And the reason we know is that the U's in 20 uh, through 23 are all singular. Do you want to be shown foolish man? So he's talking to the foolish man. Now the U's shift to plural. You all. I think he's making a distinct point with Rahab. You all see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone or vindicated by works and not by faith alone. A faith that works can vindicate. It can demonstrate and show your righteousness. Verse 24, he says, a man is vindicated by works and not by faith alone. That's A. And then B, he brings up Rahab, Rahab, verse 25, in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Now, unlike Abraham, Rahab has no statement about when she believed God. There's no statement that Rahab believed in the Lord. Rahab makes a confession of faith in the Lord or belief in the Lord, but we're never told Rahab believed and she was, it was counted to her as righteousness. So we've got a very different situation. Okay? Rahab was vindicated by her works also, but she's going to prove a, very, a different point. Okay? Now, let's state the obvious. Rahab was not vindicated by her profession. By profession, she was a prostitute. That's what she did for a living. She's identified that way in the text and also here in James 2. So she's not, is she righteous? Not by her profession, she's not. That's clear. Also, uh, well, we got to turn back there. Joshua 2. Joshua chapter 2. So she's not vindicated by her profession. Verse 6, when the spies come into her house, the king finds out about it. And the king sends messengers to her and say, she's, they say, we want to know where the men are 
who have come to spy out the land. And her response, verse 6, uh, verse 5 actually, um, true, four and a half, true, the men came to me, but I did not know where they were from. And when the gate was about to be closed at dark, the men went out. I don't know where the men went. Pursue them quickly for you will overtake them. What does she do? Lies. Totally lies. So she's not vindicated by her deception. She's not vindicated by her profession. One, she's not vindicated by her deception. Two, is Rahab righteous? Is she righteous? Not by her profession, not by her deception, and not by her confession. Verse 8. Well, we can skip to 9 because we're erring. And said to the men, I know that the Lord has given you the land and that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to the two kings of the Amorites who were beyond the Jordan Verse 11, and as soon as we heard it, our hearts melted and there was no spirit left in any man because of you. For the Lord, your God, he is God in the heavens above and on the earth beneath. Now she says that that is a good confession. I say to that confession, amen. But does that confession prove to her to prove that she is righteous? No. It can't. It can't. Why? Because who can, who's most concerned with Rahab's righteousness? The two spies. Whose life depends on Rahab's righteousness? The two spies. If Rahab is not righteous, and she's just a liar and she deceives everyone, what can she do with the two spies? Turn them right over to the king and they're dead. Do the spies yet know that Rahab is righteous? They hear her confession, but what do they want to know? Will you keep us safe? Will you send us out another way? Will you not tell of what we are doing? So when do we learn that Rahab is righteous? She is vindicated, not by her profession, her deception, or her confession, She's vindicated when she sent the spies out. She let them out with a rope out of her window. And she told them, go up into the hills west of here. Because I know the men are going to go east of here. Because that's where your big camp is. So she tells them where to hide. She says, wait three days. They'll come back and you're in the clear. And that's exactly what happened. When did we learn that Rahab was righteous? Not until she sent the men out. Her works vindicated her. Her works vindicated her. That's what James says. Wouldn't you think James might say, wasn't Rahab the prostitute justified when she confessed that the Lord is God? No, because that doesn't prove anything. By way of conclusion, James says in verse 26, For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. A faith 
without works is as dead as a body without a spirit. They might look the same. They are not the same. How do you know if a faith is alive if it has works? How do you know whether or not your faith can accomplish anything or if it's useless by what you do? Now, while that's a scary message because it means that you may have deceived yourself for some years or you may know of those who have deceived themselves for years, I think it should be an encouragement to us. We can verify, vindicate our faith. We can show our faith very easily by what we do, by how we live. If our faith is not bearing fruit, it is dead and it will not save us. Next week, we're going to spend time looking at how to apply this to our lives a little bit more and also how it relates to the rest of Scripture. But I I don't want to leave you without a so what of some kind. So our last point B, our faith can only be seen by our works. That's the only way that our faith can be seen, by what we do. So what do we do as a response? Let us abide in Christ and bear much fruit and prove to be his disciples. God gives us a way to verify, to know whether or not our faith is alive. And he calls us to it. Abide in me. Bear much fruit and prove to be my disciples. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for this message from James that is challenging but also clear. That a faith that has no works is useless. A faith that has no works is dead. A faith that is by itself alone cannot save. I pray, Lord, that if there are those here who have been trusting in that empty, dead faith, that you would open their eyes to see they need a different kind of faith. And may you grant it to them. We pray that you would give us, Lord, a connection to Christ, an abiding in him, that will lead us to bear much fruit by our works to be seen and that those works would not save us, but that those works would vindicate us and show to the world and to ourselves what we truly believe. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.